Radio Influence. The future is now. This is Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. A look inside the biggest and most controversial news stories you need to know now. One of the country's most relied upon law enforcement analysts, Vincent Hill. Hey, good evening and welcome to Beyond the Badge. Of course, I'm your host, Vincent Hill, and today is Tuesday, and I hope everyone's week has started out very blessed and very prosperous. Um, but, you know, sometimes when you get in this this business that we call news, there's always a story that you have to talk about that comes across that, you know, I don't care who you are, I don't care how professional you are, I don't care that... Yes, it's part of the job, and that's what you get called upon to do. But there's always that one story that bothers you, and uh, you know I've been following. I'm sure as much as you, many of you guys have been following uh, the disappearance of three-year-old Mariah Woods down in Jacksonville, North Carolina, uh, who was reported missing the Monday after Thanksgiving by her mother around 6 a.m. And if you remember, there was a video of a, a woman with a small child inside of a Walmart, which they believed to be this missing three-year-old Mariah Woods, which, of course, turns out it was not. Uh, so if you've been following that case, of course, she was found this past Saturday uh, in a creek about 25 miles from her home. And uh, the living boyfriend has been charged with uh, moving the body after her death, uh, obstruction of justice for concealing her death, and a few other things. He hasn't been charged with murder yet. I think the investigators are just waiting for that one piece of evidence to make that charge, and I, I really believe that piece of evidence will be what the autopsy reveals of how little Mariah Woods uh, disappeared. But I got to tell you, I was uh, on... Nancy Grace, not her TV show, of course, that has gone off the air, but I was on her uh, podcast called Crime Stories on yesterday discussing the case, and uh, Mariah Woods' biological father and his fiance were actually on that uh, show as well, and, you know, as a, as, a, as a father, you know, to hear another father crying over the death of his small child... You know, it does something to you. And again, you have to try to take emotions out of these cases and you have to present what you're asked by the host, the anchor, which, of course, was Nancy Grace. But on the inside, I was just dying inside because I couldn't imagine as a father of a three year old little girl that something happened to her and she ended up dumped in a body of water and discarded like nothing more than than trash. Uh, but when I first heard this story, you know, I, I got to tell you, I, I didn't believe it at all. Uh, you know, it's a three-year-old and someone comes into this house, this trailer in the middle of nowhere in Jacksonville, North Carolina, and they don't use Ford's entry, but when they wake up in the morning, uh, the little girl's gone and the back door is ajar and unlocked. And I always had a problem with that simply because what are the chances, and has it happened in the past? Yes, but statistically, it's very rare. What are the chances for someone to walk into a house? Now, according to the, the living boyfriend who has now been charged, this Earl Kimry, and according to the mother, who I believe 
knows exactly what happened to her little girl. Uh, the little girl was up about midnight and she was told to go back to bed. So the next morning when they go in to check on her for whatever reason, uh, cause it's six o'clock in the morning and she's three. So it's not like she has to get ready for school, but they go in and check on, on her at six in the morning and she's mysteriously gone. So of course they start doing press conferences. The mom's crying. Please bring my little baby back. Please bring my little baby back. But I always went back to the fact that, okay, if both adults were up at the time that they told her to go back to bed, we can assume they were up at some point during the night. There's two other children in the house, uh, Mariah's brothers, who I believe were like six and nine or nine and ten or, or something like that. They're They're much older, so they wanted us to believe that some stranger, some random stranger who didn't kick in the door, by the way, walked into this dark trailer, did not disturb anything, because I can walk through my apartment in pitch black and not hit anything because I know where everything is. But I wouldn't expect someone that doesn't know my apartment the way I do to be able to walk in, not disturb anything, walk past two bedrooms and take this little girl out of her room. And to make the funny the story even more weird, uh, the mother said, oh, she, when the, we sent her to bed, she had on her pajamas. But her pajamas just happened to be on the side of the bed. So that would assume that she left in a diaper or underwear, whatever she wears. And the little girl wears leg braces, which were also inside the room. So one of the theories was that she stayed awake and she walked away. Well, if she wears leg braces, she's definitely not going to walk 25 miles and then decide, you know what? I'm just going to go swimming because as parents, we all know when kids are awake in the middle of the night, they don't leave the house. They run to mommy and daddy's room because they're scared. They don't leave the house. And the thought that someone walked in, didn't disturb anything, didn't take anything, and took this little girl, just never made any sense to me at all. And to make matters worse, you know, there's allegations from Mariah's uh, biological dad that this guy, this Earl Kimry, has a history of domestic violence, a history of drug, drug use, and that there was drug use going on in the home, and that's probably what caused it, because uh, according to the biological father uh, Earl Kimry and Mariah's mom were attempting to get high Mariah was up and one of them got upset and probably went overboard with Mariah well that very well could be I mean it's no secret I've seen parents I've seen mothers trade their child for a quick fix. We've seen drug users, especially in the police world, not take care of their kids because they're more concerned about getting high than being a parent. So yeah, I I could see that happening. But to me, again, as a parent, not you know, not as an ex cop, not as an investigator, as a parent, this is very sad that if that is the story, if that is the case, that they took that little girl out of the house after she was dead, 
drove 25 miles and dumped her in a creek on a night where the weather was 35 degrees. So imagine if this little girl wasn't dead at the time and if she walks with a leg brace, we can assume that swimming is kind of difficult. Imagine if this little girl was just dumped, dumped in this creek while she was still alive. Now, I don't know how much credence I give to the whole they were getting high and uh, one of them got upset. Again, it could be. But to me, when I look at someone who's dumped a body in water, it tells me they're trying to conceal evidence like DNA evidence, like the evidence of the ungodly thought that this little girl was molested inside that home, trying to hide the signs of sexual assault. That's usually why people dump people in water. They're trying to hide evidence. They think it's going to wash off all the DNA and all of this other stuff. So to me, I think there's more to this story than they were just in there trying to get high and... One of them snapped, and it just happened, so they had to discard the body. But I do believe, I do believe the mother knows exactly what happened to her daughter. And again, the living boyfriend, this Earl Kimry, hasn't been charged with her murder yet, but I think those charges are coming. Now, what may happen is, as he starts getting closer to trial, which I think is set for December 18th, he he might start uh, snitching. And singing like a bird, because if the mother is involved, and I assure you, in the state of North Carolina, when you kill a child, a toddler, you're probably looking at either death or a life sentence. I assure you, he's probably going to start squealing like a pig if the mother was involved. And just because detectives and police haven't charged the mother, it doesn't mean they're not looking at her as a suspect. You better believe they were. You better believe they are because I said from the get-go that these types of crimes start on the inside. These investigations start on the inside. Police, although they had a search going on in and around the area of where she lives or where Mariah lived, I assure you they were already looking inside that home and piecing together this investigation. So I'm curious to find out what Mariah, little Mariah, what her cause of death was and who will be charged with her murder. And I believe at the end of the day, it will be both. It will be her mother and it will be this uh, Errol, Errol Kimry, who is currently uh, in jail on a $1 million bond, which I really don't think he'll be able to make. So I think it's safe to say he will be in jail until the trial starts. And by the way, if you want to hear uh, the podcast that I did with Nancy Grace and her panel and the father of Mariah Woods, I've posted it on my Twitter at Vincent Hill TV. The link is there. You can go there. You can listen to it. You can listen to the account from Mariah's father, Alex, and his fiance Heather. You can listen to their account of what they believe happened and what they were told by family members happened. And there's a very uh, huge red flag in this case where one of the family members said that someone saw Earl or someone leaving the trailer around 3 a.m. carrying something limp that looked like a little body. Uh, But again, it's on my Twitter account 
at Vincent Hill TV. Go there if you're interested in the case. Listen to this podcast and leave your thoughts about it. Now, real quick, I just want to share. Last night I made my uh, TV One debut uh, on this crime show called For My Man. And I've taped about, I want to say, four episodes with them. And it's a, a crime show. I guess it's the urban version of Snapped. And last night I made my very first uh, debut on TV One for my man. And once that link is available, I will post it on my Twitter as well. Now, I want to switch gears here and I want to go out to to Baltimore. And, you know, I've talked about this detective on the show for the last couple of weeks. Uh, This detective, this black detective, uh, um, Sean Souter. I always get tongue-tied when I try to say that. Sean, see what I mean? Sean Souter, uh, who was shot and killed in an alleyway back on November 15th. And to this date, Baltimore police have not made an arrest in that case. Uh, The evidence showed that he was shot with his own gun. There is some very brief audio that's been turned over to the FBI that they're trying to enhance to see if there's any clues into that. But this case gets more and more concerning and more and more interesting as time goes by. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you followed it, but this detective was actually due to testify the very next day in a corruption case against uh, some officers that had been indicted on some corruption charges, some bracketeering charges, and some other charges these officers were facing. In fact, one of the officers that was indicted uh, actually planted drugs, according to this indictment that came out just shortly after this officer was killed. Uh, He planted drugs back in 2010 for the sole purpose of this detective. I I assume he wasn't a detective at the time, uh, Detective Souter. He planted the drugs at a location with the sole purpose of getting Souter to find those drugs Therefore, people wouldn't question whether the drugs were planted or not if this officer who wasn't involved with the original search warrant happened to find the drugs. And that officer is currently uh, awaiting trial, and I assume it was part of the trial that Detective Souter was supposed to testify to the following day after he was killed. So the officer named in that indictment was Sergeant Wayne Jenkins. And he was charged with duping his colleague, Sean Souter, in 2010 into discovering drugs uh, as evidence that Jenkins had planted in a car. And I think just a second ago, I'd mentioned that the drugs were planted in the house, but they were actually planted in the car back in 2010. And it was uh, Sean Souter who found the drugs to be able to get those into evidence of the case. But... The indictment that was released, that was issued just shortly after Shooter's death, says that those drugs were actually planted by this Sergeant Wayne Jenkins. Now, there's several theories floating around about this officer's death. Now, of course, he was shot with his own gun. There's no physical evidence to say there was another gun at the scene. So one of the theories was that he committed suicide. Uh, Could it happen? Yeah, absolutely. We never know what's in someone's mind. You know, 
the job itself is stressful. The part of, um, he was about to testify the very next day on corruption charges against former colleagues. I'm sure that's very stressful. Um, but I don't know how much weight I put into that simply because he was at work that day. You know, I, I, he was with his partner. I feel if he was suicidal, then maybe he wouldn't have gone to work that day. He would have take, taken care of doing that, you know, somewhere else at home or when he's isolated by himself, not near his partner or anything like that, not while he's out investigating a triple murder, which is what he was doing that night. So I don't know how much weight I put into the suicide aspect of it. Uh, could it be a random person? Because the reports say that he was going in the alley to check on a suspicious person. Could it be a random person who overpowered this officer and took his gun? Absolutely. It can definitely happen. Uh, especially if that person's fighting skills are better. If they, they catch this officer off guard, yeah, it can absolutely happen. And they could shoot him and flee the scene. It can actually happen. Now, I'm sure there would be some type of DNA or some type of evidence that police could get a hold of and say, hey, we've tied this shooter to this person because their DNA is on this gun. Because I don't see a person that's just acting suspiciously in an alley already you know, armed or shouldn't, I shouldn't use the term armed already wearing latex gloves or, you know, OJ Simpson, black gloves. I just, I don't see it. Uh, is it possible? Yeah. If they were there to maybe do some burglaries in the area and they had gloves on to not leave fingerprints. Yeah, it can happen, but it's unlikely. And then of course, there's the theory that his death had something to do with him about to testify with this corruption charge. So, of course, there's conspiracy theory going on that his death is a result of that. Now, could that happen? Absolutely. You could have one person in the alley there as a decoy to get him there. You can have another person since he was shot with his own gun. And theoretically, you have to be behind the officer to pull out his gun from his holster or... His gun was already out and you can have someone behind him and catch the officer off guard, get his gun, shoot him. They flee the scene and it's still an unsolved homicide. So there's many theories. I really personally don't buy the suicide theory, but, you know, you you can't ignore the fact that this officer was supposed to testify the very next day. I mean, some things in policing And any detective, any police officer will tell you this. Some things in policing just aren't a coincidence. As much as we try to make them a coincidence, they just aren't a coincidence. So the uh, police commissioner has asked the FBI to take over the investigation uh, because, you know, they may know more about this corruption trial. They may know more about what's going on in this investigation other than the homicide detectives in the city of Baltimore. And I can't say I I don't agree more with the police commissioner, uh, especially not just because of the scrutiny of this case, but just the scrutiny that the city of Baltimore has seen since Freddie Gray 
Yeah, I would definitely say, hey, listen, if there's a chance that some of our people may be involved or if there's just that speculation that some of our people may be involved, we want to get the feds involved in investigating this. And if there is that minute chance, and it could be more than a minute chance, if the chance is there that it was because of this corruption thing, then absolutely you want someone unbiased, not involved, to investigate the murder of Detective Sean Souter. You know, one thing that's really not clear to me, and I'm still trying to process this, apparently there's surveillance footage of uh, Souter's partner taking cover across the street from where the shooting happened in this vacant lot. But one thing that's not clear, and I can assume, there was only one shot, so at some point, the cover becomes contact. And what that means for those that aren't in policing is, yeah, you take cover, but at some point, if you believe there's still a threat, an imminent threat, you make contact with that threat. So I'd be curious to see the video myself to see how long he was behind cover. Again, all reports suggest there was only one shot fired. Um, so was he behind cover for a while before he approached his partner? Did he, while behind cover, try to assess where the threat was? So many questions with this. And another thing that sticks out uh, to me is there's a $215,000 reward. $215,000. I know people that sell out their mama for $215. But $215,000 and no one's come forward to say, hey, I know who did it. This person's been talking, saying he did it. Obviously, it's someone that lives in the city of Baltimore, right? It's not like a tourist. It's not someone just passing through. It's somebody that lives in the city of Baltimore who was comfortable enough to walk the streets of Baltimore in a vacant alley. So the fact that no one's come forward and says, little such and such told me he did it, or my cousin came home that night and said, yeah, I just shot a cop, or anything like that, mm, you kind of have to question what the heck is going on with this case. All right, I want to switch gears and take it out to Charleston, North Carolina, where uh, that city is awaiting a sentencing hearing in the case of Michael Slager. And just to refresh your memory, Michael Slager is a former North Charleston police officer who back on uh, April 4th, 2015, shot and killed... Uh, black motorist Walter Scott and that case went to trial there was a lot of controversy with it you know I I gotta be honest and you you guys know how pro-police I am you know I've I've watched that video a hundred times I don't see the logic behind the shooting it started as a traffic stop um, Walter Scott who was 50 years old at the time got out ran uh, you can hear during the the audio which was captured uh, in Slager's patrol car that he did yell taser, taser, taser. You can actually hear the taser going off in the audio. Uh, Slager's story was that Michael, uh, I'm sorry, I almost said the wrong name, uh, Walter Scott uh, reached for his taser, tried to grab his taser, and the two struggled. Uh, as you remember, their cell phone video, which kind of contradicted uh, a lot of what Slager said, uh, and most importantly, it showed um, 
Michael Slager firing eight shots to Walter Scott as he was running away. I think he was shot five times in the back. Now, to be clear and to be fair, yes, there is a legal definition of a fleeing felon, which allows police to use force up to deadly force on a fleeing felon. There, there are several steps and measures that have to be met. Uh, the two most important is that there has to be an imminent threat, an imminent threat against public safety, meaning if this person gets away, he's going to kill someone or do serious bodily injury to someone. And that the person that is fleeing has to be a felon. Those are the two most important elements to the fleeing felon rule. Well, the problem is Walter Scott at 50 years old, who only had a child, I believe a child support warrant, uh, likely wasn't a threat to the public and he wasn't a felon. Now the stop itself was a legal traffic stop. So I don't want anyone to say it was because he was a black man and it was a white officer. The middle brake light was out. It's a legal traffic stop. And as I watched the dash cam video, Everything that Walter Scott was saying is a typical traffic stop of someone who either has a warrant, doesn't have a license or anything. His story changed, you know, a few times. Oh, I just bought the car. Well, I'm buying the car Monday. I don't have insurance. Well, you just told me you bought the car. Well, what I meant to say was they're letting me test drive the car over the weekend. Then I'm going to buy it. So then Walter Scott gets out of the car and Michael Slager, the officer tells him, get back in the car, which he does. And as an officer, I can look at this and say, this guy's about to run. And what happens? Boom, he runs. We've all seen it in policing. Everything up to that point, I agree with 100%. But again, as I look at this video and I see Walter Scott fleeing, running away from the officer, and then at some part of the video, it looks like, and it's not 100% science, it was shot on a cell phone, it looks like, Slager picks up a taser and places it next to Walter Scott while he's on the ground after he's been shot. So it went to trial for murder. It came back in a hung jury. So Michael Slager later went and admitted he used excessive force and he was charged with violating the civil rights of Walter Scott. And that's where the case is right now. It's probably expected to be several days three to four days of sentencing hearing. And of course the prosecution is asking for life in prison because of the second degree murder of Walter Scott. Now here's where the problem lies. If the prosecution couldn't prove their case in the criminal case where they were trying to get this murder charge, it's going to be really hard to prove it in a civil rights violation case. Did Michael Slager, who is now the defendant, did he agree that he used excessive force? Yes, he did. But it's hard to try to pull that into a life sentence, especially when you have someone that, as far as we know, has never been arrested before. I mean, he was a police officer. Had he been arrested, he wouldn't have been a police officer, right? Because that would have come back on his background check. And it's still an uphill battle for the prosecution to try to seek a life sentence. That's just my opinion. I'm thinking if he does get charged, well, it's obvious he's going to get charged because it's in sentencing. It's just a matter of what the sentence will be. I really don't see a life sentence out of this. Um, 
you know, I, I just don't see it. I see 10 to 15, maybe 20 years. I mean, if you look at most laws, when you charge someone with second degree murder and a handgun is used, you can get up to 25 as the minimum. Uh, the maximum, of course, is life. But when you look at those cases overall and you look at trial history, that's usually someone that's been in the system before, who has attempted murder before, who has had assaults before, somebody that's got a lengthy record, somebody coming off the street with no criminal history. Yeah, I think it's going to be a hard sell to a jury to say, hey, we need to give this individual life. But let me clear something up. Because I don't want anyone upset with me, but that happens in this line of work. Now, again, I said I've watched the video of the shooting, and I don't agree with it because Michael, uh, I keep wanting to say Michael Brown, I apologize. Walter Scott, at 50 years old, running away from the scene, if that's what you want to call it, because it really wasn't a run because he's slow, he's 50, he's got bad knees. It really wasn't a run. To me, even if the 30 or 40 seconds that we don't see on the cell phone video that Walter Scott grabbed this officer's taser and there's a struggle for the taser at that moment when those shots were fired, he's running away. He doesn't have the taser in his possession at all. So at that exact moment, there is no imminent threat against that officer's life. So to me as an officer, I can't say I feared for my life as this person was running away from me. I'll give you a, a true story. I don't know if I've shared it on this show, but one day when I was coming from court, a uh, detective puts out a call over the radio that he's behind a 72 vehicle taken in a carjacking, 1072 stolen vehicle taken in a carjacking. Now I'm in full suit in my patrol car. It's maybe 8:30 in the morning. No one keys up to say, hey, I'm on the way. Where are you at? So I finally key up and say, hey, Matt, Matt England. If you ever want to verify this story, Sergeant Matt England. I said, hey, Matt, where are you at? Oh, I'm at 17th and Shelby. So I head over there. Boom. They see me coming in my marked patrol car because he was in an unmarked car. They bolt. Driver gets out. Passenger gets out. Mark gets, uh, Matt gets the passenger at gunpoint. He doesn't run. Driver shoom, takes off. I'm in a full suit. I'm chasing this guy. He pulls out a Mac 10, Tech 9, sorry. He never once turned towards me or anything that I thought maybe he might try to shoot me, but I drew down on him as I'm still chasing him because I knew if he turned in the slightest that he could easily shoot me. So he's running, he's running, he's running. He's got this Tech 9 in his hand, which... Later, he was just trying to find a spot to ditch it. But at my point is, during this whole foot chase, although I knew he was armed, he's running away from me, and he doesn't have a clear shot based on him running as fast as he can and him still having that gun kind of at his side. Now, could I probably have shot him and likely justified it and likely been cleared of it? Yeah, absolutely, because he was armed with a gun. But in my mind, my rationale was there was no threat to me. And I got one even better. 
I could have shot him and got cleared of it because at that point he was a fleeing felon. The car was taking in a carjacking, which means they pointed a gun at someone, yanked him out of their car, and stole it. That is a felon. He's running with a gun, a fleeing felon with a gun. But my logic told me I'm not in danger. So I didn't shoot. I just continued to give chase. In my opinion, I think that's what Michael Slager, this officer in Charleston, could have done with Walter Scott. And quite frankly, (laughs) you know, he would have caught Walter Scott pretty quickly because the guy was not fast. He was out of shape. That foot chase probably would have lasted 30 seconds at best before he got away because he had already ran from the car, right? So he's winded from that. There was the slight scuffle between him him and the officer. So he's winded from that. So as he's running away, his wind is about done. So me personally, I would have just given chase again, caught this guy, and that would have been the end of it. But in all fairness, I don't want a Monday morning quarterback that officer's decision on that time. I'm just saying I don't agree with it. So there it is. Full disclosure of how I feel about the uh, Michael Slager, Walter Scott shooting that happened April 4th, 2015. Uh, The one thing I'm curious about, though, is what the sentence will be uh, and what the reaction will be if certain people don't agree with that sentence. Um you know, I I don't know where the happy point is for anybody in this case. I mean, let's say that the jury comes back and says he only does five years. And, you know, will that be an uproar? And let's say the jury comes back and says he does life. You know, what would be the uproar from the other side? We don't know. I'm just curious to find out uh, what the sentence will be and the precedence it sets uh, for these other cases. Now, to be clear, and I told him on this earlier today, uh, to be clear, this doesn't mean that just because this officer is going to prison that officers are going to stop shooting people. It definitely doesn't mean that white officers are going to stop shooting black people. Again, these circumstances are different. If you don't believe it, there's a reason that Michael Slager is being sentenced. The circumstances are different. When you look at these cases where the officer wasn't charged like Alton Sterling, Freddie Gray, Tamir Rice, Michael Brown. The circumstances and the evidence are different. Tamir Rice seen on a video pointing a gun at people. Tamir Rice seen on that same video reaching in his waistband when police arrived, which what they thought believed what they believed he had a gun. Look at Alton Sterling. He was resisting arrest armed with a gun. The circumstances are different. Walter Scott was running away, trying to get home or wherever he was going to go, maybe back to his car so that he wouldn't go to jail that day. There was no threat there in my mind. And I think that's why Michael Slager later came back and said, yes, I did use excessive force, which I shouldn't have used at that time. So I don't want anybody to get it in their head that once Michael Slager gets sentenced, that ding dong, the witch is dead. Because that's not true. These cases are told by the evidence. They're ruled by the evidence. And the evidence in most of these cases, 99%, says that the officer was justified in his actions. You look no further than Baltimore, where six officers were charged and later 
Those charges were dropped or they were acquitted of the charges. Baton Rouge, Cincinnati, St. Louis, or should I say Ferguson, it's not going to change the way people police because the bad actions or the questionable actions of one officer does not change policing. And it definitely doesn't change life and death situations or those split second decisions that police officers have to make. All right, we are way out of time. So I want to go ahead and jump into my 10-7 segment. Uh, This week, I want to honor Deputy Sheriff Eric Overall, Oakland County Sheriff's Office, uh, Oakland County, Michigan. End of watch Thursday, November 23rd, 2017. Another officer that was killed on Thanksgiving. Uh, Deputy Sheriff Eric Overall was struck and killed by a suspect vehicle as he attempted to deploy stop sticks at approximately 12.30 a.m. Officers began pursuing the vehicle in the parking lot of the Leeper County Jail after the man made threats against law enforcement. The pursuit, I'm sorry, the pursuit traveled into Oakland County on I-69 where the vehicle exited on M-15. Deputy Overall had deployed stop sticks and had taken a position well off the roadway. The driver of the vehicle intentionally drove off the roadway and struck Deputy Overall. The suspect's vehicle then overturned. Pursuing officers immediately took the man into custody. Deputy Overall had served with the Oakland Sheriff's Office for 22 years. And again, here's another officer killed on Thanksgiving. And just imagine how his family will forever associate the holiday of Thanksgiving. Because right now they have nothing to be thankful for. So my thoughts and prayers to his family. Godspeed to him. Deputy Sheriff Eric overall. Thank you for giving 22 years of service to the community of Oakland County, Michigan. I want to thank you, my loyal listeners, for listening as always. I love you. I thank you for uh, this show continually growing every week. Uh, The numbers continue to grow. I appreciate that. I appreciate the love. I appreciate you letting me into your home, into your ear every Tuesday right here on RadioInfluence.com. Good night. To continue the conversation, get updates on the show, and to find out when you can see him on television, follow Vincent on Twitter at Vincent Hill TV. That's at Vincent Hill TV. This has been Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. Chef Brian Duffy here. I've got a new show called Duffified Live that's unlike anything you've ever heard. Each week, I'm going to be talking to some of my friends, some people I've never even met before. We're going to be talking about people that I meet on the road through some of my experiences. We're talking about restaurants, talking about great stories, great guests, wild adventures, the whole nine yards. Get Duffified Live with me, Chef Brian Duffy, each week on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and RadioInfluence.com.